As we've been uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, starting a new section today, well, let's pray first. Father, again, we come before you. We pray, open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, give us instruction from your word, this beautiful letter, this wonderful letter that was written to them, but also to us as we're going to look at. And I pray, Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand what your will is for us individually and what your will is for us as a church. And and so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We yield to the working of your Holy Spirit, working within, opening our hearts. And thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Ephesians chapter 4. It's important uh, beginning here to remember who this letter is written to. Looking back at chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. This is a a letter to a, a, a... a large city in the Roman Empire in what would now be Eastern Turkey or Western Turkey. And yet he says also, so it was written to them. There was immediate relevance to this letter, but it was also, he says, also to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's us. So yes, immediate application to the people then 2000 years ago, but ongoing relevant application to us. We are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so as we've looked at this, we see that the first three chapters, there's just such contrast between the two major sections in this letter. The first three chapters, we've talked about what it is to be in Christ. Talked about it a lot. And Paul goes through and he really drills down on what it is to be in Christ. These last three chapters is what it is to have Christ in us. And that inward work producing the outward change. Uh, We're going to look at these contrasts. We're going to look at the fact that in the first three chapters, we had position. We saw what our position is in God's economy. And now we are going to look at practice. So it's position there. These last three chapters talks about practice. What is the practical application for us? We've looked at doctrine in the first three chapters. Uh, the, the, Paul does some beautiful illustrations of major doctrines of the Christian faith. Salvation by grace through faith being pre, a, 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 a primary doctrine that, that we don't compromise on. It has to be by God's grace. So we've looked at doctrine, and now we're going to look at duty. What is it that we do with the information that we've had? Uh, we've looked at the wealth that we have in Christ, the, the great riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And we've seen uh, several times in these first three chapters where Paul talks about the riches that we have in Christ. He's not talking about monetary gain, but he's talking about spiritual riches that we actually can come into a relationship with God, a personal relationship that, that, that will transform our lives now. And also that through that, uh, he gives us eternal life. We're going to talk about that too. Uh, so we've looked at the wealth that we have, and now we look at the walk that we have. We look at the inward working that God is doing in us, that he's working in us, that we are his workmanship. And now in these last three chapters, we're going to look at the outward working, the outward flowing, the, the result of that work. Because folks, it's one thing, to be a student of God's word. And that's a good thing. I love being a student of God's word. But if it stops there, if I don't go any further with this, then it's really, I've got, I've got a head full of knowledge. God's will in this, Paul's intention in this, in this letter is to lay it out and then say, now it's time for you to take that knowledge and put it to work. It's time to apply these things to your lives. So as we look at this, uh, last week we looked at, remember there's no chapter breaks in the original that these things that as, as the Lord inspires, as the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write, he's not doing this with chapter breaks. We looked at this prayer last week. We looked at Paul, the apostle being on his knees. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father that he's chained to a Roman guard, perhaps tugging the guy down as he gets down on his knees. I believe he literally did that. In that, he prays five things. He says, he he prays that we be yielded to the Holy Spirit strengthening as he grants power to our inner man or inner woman. Again, man in the Bible is a reference to humanity. It applies to men and women alike. And so as we do that, we allow him to settle down and to be at home in our hearts. We looked at that last week to have free reign inside of us in our hearts, to trans, to bring his transforming work, his transforming power to us. The result of that 
is that our foundation, we looked at, again, this is all part of uh, Paul's prayer. We looked at the progression there last week of his prayer, that our foundation, the spiritual foundation that we have is strengthened. We allow the roots to go down, the roots of deepening faith to go down. And that leads to a greater comprehension of God's love for us, that we grow in our relationship with him. We grow in the grace and knowledge of him, as the Bible tells us, that we, we get to the point where as we are just understanding God's love flowing towards us, that it's just incomprehensible, that it's beyond our understanding. As Paul says, that we can't fully grasp it and we let go. We just, you know what? I, 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 it's like it says in the Psalms, it is high. I can't attain it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And yet we do know that we have the ability to embrace that love, to allow this experiential internal reality uh, to be in step with all that Christ has done in my life, all that he is currently doing and that which he's yet to do in us. So the result is that Jesus has greater and greater access to the inner man and, and that he himself does the work. He simply wants a vessel that's yielded. He's getting a hold of and transforming our motives, our attitudes, and our hidden life. That's the work that he's doing. That's what Paul has laid out in these first three chapters in that he caps off with this prayer. We're going to look at, interesting, and the name of this study is to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. But we're going to look at worthiness here. And I don't want you to, just by way of introduction of the text we're going to look at this morning, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. This is not about earning God's favor and therefore being worthy. That would totally negate the things we've already looked at here in Ephesians and what the, the Bible in general has to say about the relationship that we have with God. It's not about me working to be worthy in God's sight. This isn't about my worthiness. It's about his. It's about him being worthy of my praise. It's about him being worthy of my obedience. It's about him being worthy of my life just being a living sacrifice for him. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. So I want you to understand when, when we talk about walking worthy, that doesn't mean that it's supposed to generate busyness on my behalf to become worthy. I already am. Uh, when I was in the Mormon church uh, in my 20s, uh, one day they had their equivalent of communion. It was, they called it sacraments, water and bread. I won't go into why they ignore the blood. <laughs> but... The point is, is that the tray came to me and the guy next to me elbowed me and told me not to take it. And I, I whispered to him, why not? And he said, because you're not worthy. And a boisterous guy in my 20s with a rather <clears throat> foul temper wanted to show him how unworthy I was in that moment. But the point is, is that the Bible says none is worthy. None of us can, none of us in our own merit can come and become worthy before God. If you are stuck in kind of a works trip to where you're sort of trying to earn points with God, stop it. It's not the way we relate to him. We relate to him by understanding that the work is done. I am washed in the blood of the lamb. As we looked at just a moment ago, when we came to the Lord's table, that my life is new. And so when Paul talks about walking worthy of the calling, he's talking about the worth that we place on him, not the worth that we're trying to earn in ourselves. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 6 here in Ephesians 4. Then we're going to come back and unpack it a bit. Uh, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, as is there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's a mouthful. <laughs> There's a lot there. Uh, we're going to go through this and, and look at what Paul's intention is in this. So but it's important again to remember that Paul now, after we've looked at these three chapters of, of him laying out the, the doctor, doctrinal premises of, of what this walk of faith is, that now he pivots. He doesn't move away from, but he pivots. He goes from instruction now to exhortation. And exhortation is a strong encouragement. It's, it's saying, look, this is what you need to pay attention to. And so he's essentially saying, 
Pay attention to this. He's, he's going to get into this. And, and he's saying, you've learned these truths. Now it's time for you to put them into practice. He's taught them. He's saying, now let's apply these things to our lives. Verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He says, therefore, in, in other words, in light of all that I've been saying, in light of the prayer that I just prayed on your behalf, interceding for them, for us, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, in light of all of that, I, the prisoner of the Lord. He says that again. He said that in chapter 3. Uh, and we looked at that at length. We're not going to go into it again, but he's not saying I'm in a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. That was his uh, view of his own circumstances that it didn't get in the way. His being a prisoner didn't get in the way of God's will. He understood that was God's will. So he essentially is saying, I'm right where God wants me. He says, I beseech you. The word beseech is an interesting word. There are some commentators is looking at different ones as, as preparing for this that, that, that say that this is a command. This is not a command. It is a strong imperative. He's saying these are things that ought to be in place in your life if you name the name of Christ, if you are a Christian. But he says, I beseech you. The word literally means, I beg you, please. It's a, he says, your translation might say entreat or urge or implore. The different ways that this word is rendered. But the Greek word literally means to urge or to appeal to you. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of what I've been saying. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've been called with. So interesting, as I was looking at this, I began to see a pattern emerge. Uh, I've, I've taught through the book of Romans a couple of times over the years and, and began to look at this and, and saw that there's a, there's a real clear pattern. I want to look at that for a minute. In Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bible or your tablet or your device, <laughs> you might want to turn there. We're going to look at 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I be, he uses this word there too. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So both of these statements are transitional. And and let me explain what I mean by that. In in the book of Romans, the first eight chapters uh, talk about a believer's position and the believer's power. Chapter 8, especially the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the greatest treatment in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in God's word. Uh, so in these eight chapters, the, when he says, by the mercies of God, what he's talking about, well, what are the mercies of God? All of the things I've been telling you, the things that he had laid out all the way up to that point in the book of Romans, in this letter to the church at Rome. Verses 9 through 11 are parenthetical. There are big parentheses. It talks about God's dis- disposition towards Israel. So we sort of set that aside as we look at this. And so chapters 12 through 16 have everything to do with practice. It's the application of the things that he had been saying to them. Very interesting. The same pattern exists here in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, because of everything I've just said in chapters 1 through 3, and he's laid out the believer's position. He's also laid out the power that we were, the source of our power, the Holy Spirit. And then in chapters four through six, he goes into practice. It's the same pattern. It's the application of God's word. And so my point in all of that is it's never, again, it's never just for the purpose of gaining head knowledge. It's for the purpose of gaining instruction, understanding our position, understanding the power that we have as believers, and then putting that to practice, practical application in our lives. He says, I beseech you to walk. Now, Interesting, the Greek word there uh, for walk, it's peripateo. What it is, it's not a a reference to physically walking. It's a reference to conduct and behavior. It's it's a reference to lifestyle. What he's saying is the pattern of your life should be that you're walking in this way. Why would he use the word walk? Uh, Because essentially it suggests activity and movement and progress. And my point to you in that is exactly as we know more, as we want to grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we walk with him, as we apply his word to our life, as we go through these things, it's important, gang, that we understand that we need to walk them out, 
There is activity on our behalf. It's a response to his grace. It's a response to his love. It's a response to the work that he did on our behalf when we are helpless. And yes, there is something that we supply. The Christian life isn't static. This is not a static walk that we have. This is, it's an active thing. It's something that, and that's why we come to the Lord's table on a regular basis because it's not a static deal to where we're just steeped now and bogged down in traditions and all of that. That's a sign of a dead church. We'll talk about that as we wrap up this morning. But as, as his living church, as the body of Christ, these are things that he's saying are, they need to be in place. They need to be evidenced in your life. That's why he uses the word walk. He says, and essentially it means to order your behavior in a manner that's worthy. The word worthy means fitting or proper or walk in a manner consistent with your calling. Interesting. What he's talking about is, is worthy. He, worth demonstrates value. He's saying walk in a manner that, that demonstrates the value you put on your relationship with Christ. That's essentially what it is. It's about the, the value that he has and that my life reflects that. He says, you're called of God here into his family. Now allow the spirit of God to produce his life within you, essentially is what's going on here. Simply, he's saying, live up to the family name. I remember my father, uh, born in 1905. He was, he was an old geezer when I was a kid. <laughs> he, I was very late in his life. Uh, and he was uh, this kind of this gruff, gravelly voice Texan. And he, and he would tell me sometimes, Johnny, because he always called me Johnny. Uh, and he'd say, a Terry don't lie, and a Terry don't steal. And he would go through and he would be telling me these values, it, it, just instilling values in me as a young boy as to what our family represents. And and I look at that and I think, well, you know, the family of God, what, what does it represent? I wanted to live up to the family name at that time. And, and I want to live up to the family name now. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. He's saying... Walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Now in verse two, he goes from the general. He's, he talks about that. Well, what does that mean? I mean, walk in a manner. Yeah, all right. How does that show up in my life? So now he goes from the general. He gives the general uh, term there and he goes to specifics. And he says, this is what that looks like. Uh, verse two, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. So beginning in verse two, Paul gives a list now of what you could call Christian graces. Again, these are things that ought to be evident. And in growing, uh, showing up as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, in growing measure in our lives. So why would he start here? And the reason is real simple, folks. These graces are all necessary if we're going to preserve and maintain unity in God's church. It is so important that we understand and that we take to heart the things that are put forth in this passage. This is life or death for a church. I don't want to understate it. I certainly don't want to overstate it. I don't know that you can. He's talking about attitudes of the heart, that if we have these down and they're in operation in our lives, we will do well individually. We will do well as his church, as a church. Not just our church, but the church in general. Yes, specifically our church, because I believe that God has called each of us here that, that has identified and become a part of this ministry, but he's talking about the church. So the first thing he goes into here, he talks about lowliness, the lowliness that uh, lowliness of mind is, is what he's talking about. And essentially what that is, is humility. In Philippians chapter two, verse three, we read this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So this whole others-centered attitude is central to our functioning as a healthy member of the body of Christ. Humility is an attitude of the heart. Humility comes by seeing ourselves essentially as we are before a holy God. When I look and I understand that, that God knows all about me, cracks, warts, freckles, and all and that he chooses to love me anyway? I don't know about you, but if that doesn't produce a sense of humility in you to know that his love is poured out, he knows all about me and he loves me with an immeasurable love. That's a wonderful thing. As I look at myself in that through that lens, I'm a sinner saved utterly by his grace, not because of anything I could supply. I think about John the Baptist. Here's this guy, you know, he 
He plants a church out on the other side of the Jordan River, right? I mean, <laughs> I love the story about John the Baptist. And, and here he's got this big movement going and he's doing this baptism for repentance, for remission of sins and literally preparing Israel to receive the Messiah when he comes. And he's got this whole thing going. And then up one day in the midst of the crowds walks this guy, Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit bearing witness to John says, here's one whose sandal I'm not even worthy to unloose. I must decrease that he may increase in my life. Genuine, genuine hum- humility. It's something I, I read here. A definition of humility is putting Christ first, others second, and ourselves last. Isn't that good? It's the antithesis, the polar opposite of arrogance and pride. So he says, walk in lowliness. The point Folks, this isn't optional. When everyone is operating from this place, where are factions? Where are divisions? Where is us being opposed in opposition to one another? It doesn't exist. If each of us is putting others ahead of ourselves, if each of us has the attitude of going low, the body works so well. There's just so much love expressed in that. There's so much genuine gratification, satisfaction in our relationships with each other not just in the church, but in our marriages. This is a wonderful attribute, humility, lowliness of mind. The second thing he talks about here is gentleness. It means gentle in our actions towards other others. It, it, the, the literal in the Greek, the way this sentence is constructed, constructed is it's gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast with harshness in one's dealings with other people. It's the opposite of being harsh. It's the opposite of somebody that's always up in your face, somebody that is trying to assert themselves over you. I think about our Lord himself in in Matthew 11, verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, humble, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus combines gentleness and humility of heart. And we want, after all, what is our goal? It's, it's, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. What he's demonstrating in that is true meekness. The biblical definition of meekness is power under control. Uh, and yes, he had the power. He had the authority. He, he had all of that. And yet he came as a servant. He came in humility. He came to serve others, to give his life a ransom for many. Going low. Very, very important. For us, it's part of the fruit of his spirit. How's it going with that? How's it going with, with humility? How's it going with lowliness of heart and gentleness? How's it going with your spouse? And the Lord works in my heart. He's just in the last couple of days, he profoundly convicted me about something. I had to go to Stacy and just ask her to forgive me. These are good things. Don't be so prideful and arrogant that you don't think that you need to do that. We all do. We're all broken in ways. We all have this flesh that we battle. It's what are you going to do with it when that happens that count? So how's it going with your spouse? How's it going with your children? Are you harsh? Are you demanding, condescending? Or do you have grace allowing them to be who they are, keeping them reined in, yes, and keeping a hand on them, nurturing them, giving them the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? These are good things for us to examine ourselves over, folks. Uh, It's not me preaching at you. These things apply to me too. The third thing he talks about is long-suffering. This is patient. In in some translations, it's translated long-suffering, like here in the New King James, but it's also translated and rendered patience in others. It's the same word. Here's a definition of long-suffering. It's being long-tempered as opposed to being short-tempered. And... uh, Admittedly, this is probably the most difficult in this list that Paul is giving here as he's now exhorting the people to apply these truths that he's been giving them to their lives. He's saying, be patient, be long suffering. And I'll tell you what, folks, it's hard. (laughs) We are programmed by our culture and we, and we buy into it. We want quick gratification. We want a fast response. We're conditioned to want it. I, I think about if that computer page doesn't load right now, I'm starting to get a little sideways about it. If, if I'm in traffic and the light turns green and that person delays for two seconds, it's in front of me, I'm thinking about it. You know, I mean, at the grocery store, it seems like I always end up behind the person who waits to get into their purse or their wallet for their checkbook until after the total is there. And I'm thinking, why aren't you ready? And it's like, stop. <laughs> Amazon, I think about Amazon, their business plan is two-day shipping because they know we want it now. 
I was laughing. I was thinking about preparing this and thinking about I, when I fly somewhere, I usually use Southwest Airlines because I have, we have travel points on that. At any rate, they have the seating thing where you get a slot that you're in for when you're going to fly. They say, you know, if you're B42 or whatever, you stand in that spot. And it seems like the minute that they announce the flight, maybe the plane that's dumping passengers off is still getting, having people deplane and people are already lining up and they're already jamming into this whole deal. And I sit there, I sit there until it's almost time for my group to board and then I go take my place because, and I sit there, sometimes I smile, I think the plane ain't going to leave without me. It's really not. And it's just, we are conditioned for wanting to have it and to have it now. All of that has to do with stuff. What about people? How patient are you? in your life, in your heart of heart. These are things that the Lord wants to do business with us on. These are things that all of us are growing in. This is not meant to condemn, not in any way. We're all in process. As I mentioned, we're all working towards wanting to be like Jesus. Are any of us there in a full measure? No. And yet these are good things to put on in our lives, to put off the old man, to put on the new man, because this is part of the new man. This is part of the regenerated man. Sometimes we get on one another's nerves, don't we? I can't tell you how many times, like with the grocery store or being in traffic or whatever, that I'll have kind of a knee-jerk response and the Holy Spirit will, just in that gentle way that God addresses, sometimes it's not so gentle, but he'll just say, you know, John, I just wanted to show you your heart. Convicting. Allow that conviction to have the desired result. As the Lord moves, as he convicts, as he works, as he does that work in us, as he reveals our hearts, he wants a heart that wants to go low with him. He wants a heart that's not prideful, that's not lifted up. He wants a humble heart that says, yes, Lord, I know I blew it. I need to tell Stacy, or, or I'm sorry. I need to deal with that. I need to just settle down and let traffic do what it's going to do or whatever it is. He reveals our hearts. He's patient with us. So he, we need to be patient with others because God is so patient with us. It's just amazing. It's remarkable to me that he pours out his love on us every day, even though we just, sometimes we're just skittering around all over the place. And he just says, won't you come to me? Won't you spend time with me today? Won't you allow me to work in your heart? Won't you allow my transforming hand to come into play in your life? Wonderful, wonderful. He doesn't come to us to beat us up and to point out all of our flaws and to just tell us what a mess we are. He comes and he says, why don't you give that? Let me grow you. The fourth thing he says here is bearing with one another. What that means is enduring. The New American Standard says showing tolerance for one another. As we look at that, what does it mean? The word tolerance, it means to, to have wide margins as, as we're dealing with one another that we have to understand not everybody's like us. And so we bear with one another. Colossians 1.13 says this, this is bearing with and forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. So what's the standard in this bearing with one another thing? Look at how God bears with us. Look at how he works in our hearts. Look at how he comes in gentleness and in humility and says, John, or your name inserted in that, I want to work in your heart. I want to work in your life. I want to have that transforming hand in your life. Why would he do this? Why would Paul put this down? Again, simple answer. We're different from each other. Folks, we are so different. I marvel sometimes. I look at the body of Christ and, and I think, Lord, it, only you could could get a group of people together that are so different, so completely different, different tastes, different attitudes, different likes, different dislikes, different, different, different. We're so different. We have different convictions. We like different food. We like different books. We have, we like different kinds of entertainment. We dress differently. It goes on and on. There's tremendous variety in the body of Christ and that's okay. Where it stops being okay is if we now begin to become critical of one another over those differences. That's where, that's where God draws the line. The point in this is never, and I'm going to emphasize this, never allow our differences to generate a critical spirit in your life. Never. It's a fast track out of God's will. If you are, are nursing a critical spirit now, I, I encourage you to repent. Simply identify that. Lord, I, I don't want that in my life. Won't you just please give me a heart of humility and grace. That's God's will for us. It's his specific revealed will for you and I. The fifth thing he says here is he says, bearing one with one another in love. It's agape. 
That's the love that he's talking about, that sacrificial love, the highest form of love that there is. It's unconditional love that expects nothing in return. This is a unique love. It's a love that says, I love you because I'm choosing to love you, not because you're somehow meriting, you're somehow deserving my love. Uh, and the point is that if we're walking this in this, if, if we're just simply walking in agape, if we're walking in love, all of the other graces that are listed here will be present in our lives. They'll be present in our relationships and they'll be present in our church. That's again, that's what God wants to see in us. Uh, Paul is writing to this church and he knows that there are differences there and, and he's wanting them to preserve unity in the bond of peace. We're getting to that. So we have differences, but it's worth noting that we were different when God got a hold of us. How diverse are we? And he accepts us. The Bible says we're accepted in the beloved. In Ephesians uh, chapter one, we looked at that uh, some weeks ago, he, Paul is talking about our salvation. He says, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It wasn't because he didn't see our differences. He does. It's that he has wide margins for our differences. How much more should we? That we're accepted in the beloved. The question is, is what is the basis of your acceptance of others? Is it performance? I'll tell you what, folks. From birth, we are raised with performance-based acceptance. You do a good job, you get a raise. You do a bad job, you get fired. You, you, you do your chores around the house, you get your allowance. You don't do your chores, you get a, you know, all of it. It's all performance-based. It's drilled into us. That's not so in the kingdom of God. It's not performance-based. It's grace-based. So is your acceptance of others based on their performance? We slip into it. I do. We slip into that. Or is it based in grace? I love you because you are someone that I choose to love. I love you because God loves me that way. I want him to work in me and through me. When we talk about God working in us and through us, these are the things that, that we're talking about. This is, this is essential stuff. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. When he talks about endeavoring there, it's, it's the same word as for diligence. It speaks of a determined effort that we are intentional in our lives. Uh, the, the tense there in the Greek is he's saying constantly be endeavoring. It's very important that we, we keep, we guard, we hold fast, we preserve this bond of peace. How do we do it? Through, through choosing to remain unified, through having grace, through applying these things to our lives. Something that's really worth noting here is he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. In the church, in our lives, the Holy Spirit has already created unity. Remember, it's not about being accepted and, and uh, it's not ex- about not being accepted because we're different. It's about being accepted in the beloved by his grace. And so he's already created unity. What we can do is mess that up. We come to Christ, we're accepted in the beloved. We need to maintain that unity. That's why he says, keep the unity of the spirit. That it sometimes takes effort. It, sometimes if somebody's getting on our nerves, or if somebody's rubbing us the wrong way, or somebody said something that we thought was, whatever it is that we need to be intentional again in having grace, understanding that the Holy Spirit has already established unity in the body. It's to us to maintain that. The responsibility, this is the responsibility of every Christian to keep the unity of the spirit. When unity is broken, strife and divisions spring up, guaranteed. Again, I can't stress this enough. This is really critical stuff. Churches divide over these things. Churches divide because people become critical of the color of the carpet or because you're doing this or you're not doing that. You're over here. You're over. Something that I came across a, a, a slide I thought about putting on it. No, I won't. But it, it had all of the different opinions that people have about the pandemic. And, and in the middle, and one of us is open your church. Why have you kept it? The other is don't ever open it. The other is I like it at home. Well, I need to be a church. Well, I need it. And it was just all of these things. And in the center was a circle and it said pastor. <laughs> I laughed when I read that. I thought, wow, that feels like what I'm dealing with. Because we all have different opinions. We all have different tastes. We all have different thoughts about these things. We can allow them to cause us to divide or we can have grace to say, you know what? I know that my opinion, my thought isn't the only one. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to give me guidance, give me direction as to what's right for me. And I'm going to trust him with the rest. 
That's how we preserve the unity in the body, in the bond of peace. What it amounts to is the Bible tells us that the flesh sets itself against the spirit. The flesh being that nature of Adam in us, that old nature, that that sin nature, it sets itself against the spirit of God who lives in us. And there's this battle that goes on. And the battle is over who's on the throne of my heart. Is it John or is it Jesus? The flesh wants the power. The flesh lusts for the power. The flesh has no power. The flesh is, the spirit brings power, but the the spirit wants position in my heart. And so there's this, there's this, this battle that goes on. As I yield to the spirit, give him the place in my heart, then my life does well. As I yield to the flesh and allow him to, that old man to reign on the throne of my heart, it's not going to go well. So what's going on in your heart? What, how does that battle shape up for you? Are you yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you hanging on to your way, your thoughts, your opinion? To the exception of that, doesn't mean we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we don't have our own thoughts. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is those things can impede the unity that God wants us to have and the bond of peace. The point in all of this is walk in these graces. What Paul is saying is walk, walk it out. Walk in these graces, maintaining the unity that God has given us. He already has given us in the bond of peace. Now in verses four through six, the word one is used seven times. He's talking about unity here. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to sort of unwrap that What does the unity look like? He uses that word one intentionally here because he's going to, he's basically going to illustrate what unity looks like. What are the things that bind us together? What are the things that unify us? And so as he's going to go into that in verse four here, they formed this unity that Paul's been talking about. In verse four, he says, there's one body. There is one body. It's, it's called the church, the capital C church. Yeah, there, there are many local churches, but the church, the body of Christ, that's what he's referring to there. The term church is used, uh, that it's used in, in, in a church's name doesn't necessarily mean that it's part of the church. Uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not a church, not according to God's word. An organization, yes. A religious organization, yes. There are many that claim that term, but you got to be careful. The enemy is the great imitator. He's, he, he sets down the duplicate next to the, the original, next to the real one. More and more, we see so-called churches that have been included in the body of Christ that are breaking away because they're going after another gospel, a false gospel that promises either prosperity or uh, that that's a whole litany of false doctrines that have now crept in and are being peddled in the church. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, we are not like the many. The word many there means many to the most part. We are not like the many who peddle the word of God, but as of sincerity, we speak truth. So, what he's talking about here is, he says, there's one spirit. One spirit is a re- reference here to the Holy Spirit in verse four. He's the one that gives new life to every believer. He's the one that dwells within every believer, true believers. He gives gifts to everyone. He's the one that produces fruit in your life and in mine. He's the one that empowers us for service. He's the one that, that as he indwells us, He's the one that gives us understanding, that gives us clarity, that that has that transforming work in our hearts, that as we simply yield to that, it's the work of one spirit. Added to that, I want to, again, make a clarification. A God-made church will be governed by the Holy Spirit, and there will be life in that church. A man-made church, usually a church that's steeped in tradition, not that traditions are bad, but if you, if they have begun, you've talked, I've talked about this before, folks, that we start out, the Holy Spirit gives us a task. And if we allow that to get kind of dried out and dusty pretty soon, it's a, a, a tradition, it's a ritual. And then pretty soon we're just off the rails and we're doing it because it's just what we've always done. And this, the life of God is left a long time ago. A man-made church, usually steeped in traditions, will be described as a dead Church, uh, very, very important that we understand the difference there is the life of God at work in his church, in the body. Again, in verse four, he says, there's one body, one spirit. He says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. The word calling there means chosen by God. So we share a common hope with one another. 
which centers at all centers around Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He's not a doctrine of hope. He is our hope. So what do we hope in as believers? A few things here. The first is we hope in everlasting life. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the great hope of Christians and Christianity. Connected to that, we also hope in Christ's soon return. Uh, we want to see him come back. And folks, I'll tell you what, there are times where I look at it and I think it's two minutes to midnight. It, it, the, the signs of the times that my wife and I were talking, we were looking at all these things that are going on and, you know, defunding police. And it's like, oh my gosh, all of the things that are going on in the political landscape and the social landscape in our nation and around the world, it has literally become calling that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Persecution is mounting upon the church in our country. Things are going on all around us. We do well to look at these things through spiritual eyes. We look for his soon return. That's our hope. Connected to that, in 1 John 3, we see that when we see him, we shall be like him. I have great hope in getting rid of this body. (laughs) We look forward to those incorruptible bodies. And that when we're like him, We have tremendous hope. We have one hope. It's in Jesus Christ manifested in these ways. Verse five, he says, one Lord. There's only one who can legitimately be called Lord. In the first century, it's interesting because part of why I believe Paul wrote this was that Emperor Nero in the first century issued an edict that he be addressed as Lord, that they would say Nero is Lord. And Paul, of course, would say not so fast. Some were martyred because of that. We do well to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one that died for us. He was born for us. He died for us. And one day he'll come for us. When we think of the word Lord, that means that he's our master. He is the supreme, absolute ruler in our lives. The Bible says you were not your own. You were bought with a price. What does that mean? That means I have a Lord. I am here to do the the bidding of my master. I am here. My life is at his pleasure. He's my Lord. Is he yours? We'll give you an opportunity to deal with that question in a few minutes if you've never come into a relationship with Christ. Again, in verse verse 5, he says, one Lord, one faith. Now, this is not a reference to faith in general. This is a reference to the, the one standard of truth that's been revealed by God, the faith. In Jude chapter, Jude, it doesn't have chapters, it's one, one chapter. In Jude verse 3, uh, we read this. He says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, not your faith, the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith referred to here is the body of truth given to the church. So one faith. Folks, we do well to major in the majors. We can get off into minor disputes and squabblings. Paul says, in one of his letters, he says, don't waste time on fruitless arguments with people. Don't get caught up in that. Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? You know, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it? I mean, there's all kinds of weird questions out there. We can even get bogged down in, in biblical discussions over minor things. Major in the majors. Allow people to have their opinions. I, you know, we're going to look at baptism here in a second. There's different opinions about that. Have wide margins. Have tolerance for other people's positions on minor doctrinal issues. Finishing up in verse 5, he talks about one baptism. He's not talking about here, he's not talking about the mode of baptism. Uh, Do you get baptized in a river? I was baptized in the Rogue River in April with runoff. (laughs) It was the coldest experience of my life, but it was an awesome experience. But do you get baptized in a river? Do you get baptized in the ocean? Do you get baptized in a... I know a guy that goes baptized in his bathtub. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about the mode of baptism. When he says one baptism, he's speaking of the symbol of our identification in Christ. That's baptism. Baptism, as you know, it's symbolic. It's symbolic of the putting away of our sin at the moment of our conversion. Not when we were baptized, but at the moment I was con- that, that I gave my life to Christ, the moment that the Holy Spirit came in and indwelt my heart, that my sin was put away. Baptized, that's the symbol of going down into the water, being resurrected to newness of life, coming back out. That's why I believe that water baptism by immersion is the biblical method of baptism. 
If you have a different opinion about that, I'm not going to argue with you. I'll tell you you're wrong. No, anyway. But the point is, I, I joke, but the point is he's not talking about the mode of baptism. He's talking about our identification in Christ, that we're baptized into his death or resurrected to newness of life. One baptism. There's one way. His name is Jesus. He went to a cross. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you life. Life here and life eternal. Verse 6, he says, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. In the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods in Paul's day, there was no such thing as one God. The, the, the culture that was up against the church in those days wanted to peddle a whole list of gods. Gods for fertility, gods for weather, gods for this, gods for that. And they had a bunch. They were all lowercase g gods. They weren't real, but they were false gods that people put their trust in. And when he says one God here, he's talking to a Gentile city that had been, they had the temple of Diana in Ephesus where they paid homage to these different gods. And he's saying, no, there's, there's one. That's it. One God. He talks about him being the God and father. And I want to note that he's only father to those who have trusted Christ as Lord. Interesting. He says through all, uh, and in you all. He's above all, through all, and in you all. What he's talking about here is God is, there's a, the, we're going to look at, as we wrap up this morning, look at a couple of theological terms. One is that God is transcendent. And it's important that you understand, and if you go off and forget the word, you can just understand what it means, that he is transcendent. That means he is over all, he is above all, that he's separate from his creation. He transcends it. He's above it. He's above us. He's not connected to us. He's not a product of it. He, he's the creator of it. So God is transcendent. He's, he is above all. He's through all and in all. That's true. But you've got to also realize there's another theological term that comes into play here and that he also possesses imminence. And to understand the imminence of God, not imminent with an I, that means it's going to happen pretty quick, but imminent with an A, that God is imminent. That means that he is near, that he chooses nearness. That is manifest in the work that he did in sending his son to come as a man to identify with humanity. That is the imminence of God at work in the person of Jesus, that he prefers imminence over transcendence because of the work that he's done. That's great news. You need to understand that, folks. If you wonder, what's the difference? Why is it that God, you know, I see this thundering, quaking, and this far off and all of that. How could he be the same God that we see like in the Old Testament? That's transcendent. And then we see Jesus. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Coming near, being relational. It's because of the imminence of God. Understand that. So summarizing here, we're called to walk worthy of our calling. We accomplish that objective through the attitudes of our hearts. Humility, going low. Gentleness, patience, that we're committed to unity above our differences. Having as our goal the bond of peace, maintaining that bond of peace. These things, folks, we talk about in our church, we talk about learning to think like Jesus. These are the fruit of his Holy Spirit. As we yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, our differences don't matter. They just don't come into play. I have room for your difference. Unless we're talking about major doctrinal issues, then yeah, then we're going to talk because you can't pervert the gospel. I mean, that's where you draw the line. But on the rest, the kind of clothes you wear, the, you, do you, what kind of stuff do you do? I mean, what are your, all of that. It's just, you know what? He accepted us in that. We do well to accept one another in that. So we're committed to unity above that. He goes on as we looked at verses four through six and he talks about the ties which bind us together as one, that there's one body, the body of Christ. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer. We have one hope, the hope in the resurrection, the hope that we're going to be like him, the hope that he's going to come back for us. And I pray he comes back for his church soon. The darkness is getting darker. And yet in the meantime, by default, our light, the light of Christ shining within us, shines brighter. We have one Lord. We're not worshiping a bunch of lowercase g gods. You could translate that in our culture to what is, who is your Lord? What is the God that you serve? Is it the God of materialism? Is it the God of sex or money or power? Or is it the God of the universe that humbled himself and took the form of a man that was born, grew up, went to the cross? Good question. We have one Lord. We have one faith. 
the body of knowledge that's been poured out through men who were inspired to write these things down, that this, this word of God is actually God's, literally God's speech to us. It is his expressed word. We have one baptism. The baptism, the symbols of baptism being dying to the old life, being resurrected to a new life. There's one baptism, the identity that we have in Christ. And we have one God and Father. There is so much meaning. There is so much rich. There is so much depth in these passages. My prayer for you, church, is that you would get a hold of these in ever increasing measure, that as, as you come to greater understanding of these things, that you learn to walk these things out, that I learn to walk these things out. We're all in process. They'll get beat up. But if the Lord's putting his hand on something in your life this morning, I encourage you, do business with him. Take the admonition, take the exhortation, because it's there to build you up, not to tear you down. If you don't know Christ this morning, perhaps God has stripped back some things in your heart and you see that there's some power in this, that there's that this is real, that you have a witness inside that these things that are spoken are true because they're not my opinion. This is God's word. If the Holy Spirit is moving in you and you see that you need to give your life to Christ, that you, you've been perhaps trying to live your life your way and it's not working, your life is jammed up or you're stressed out or you're looking at the circumstances and wondering what to do, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer. And it would sound something like, Father, I've lived my life away from you or God, I, I, I want to know you. I've lived away from you. I see the futility of living my life for myself and these things speak to, and I want you to speak to me more. I want to come into your kingdom. I want to let the weight of my life down upon Jesus. And my friend, if that's what you're doing, the Bible tells us that angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. And if that's happening with you, that's what's happening there. I would encourage you, call me, call a friend, somebody that you know is a believer. Tell them what you're doing or what you've done. Again, that simple prayer. Uh, I, I turn from my old life and I embrace you, Jesus. I want a new life. And I guarantee you, he'll do it. He's in the job of taking broken, messed up, dented up lives and making new ones. For all of us, this instruction from the book of Ephesians is just so essential that we understand that our enemy is out there and he is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. These are the things through which he does that devouring work if we get them wrong. I exhort you, in love, walk this thing out. Walk out this unity of the faith in the bond of praying. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the power that you give us to carry these things off. We know it's not in our power, Lord. We know that it's not dependent on us trying to get up enough energy to do these things, but through simply coming to you on bended knee even and, and, and yielding to the work that you want to do in us, I pray, Father, for each one within the sound of my voice that you would find a yieldedness to the, the working, the power of your Holy Spirit to transform lives. Whether we've been a Christian for two minutes or 50 years, Lord, we know that there's work that you want to do in each of us. We yield to that now. We pray that you would just go before us. We pray that as you pour out your love on us, that we would hear your voice and that we would follow you. Thank you for this morning, Father. We thank you for the ability to come together and worship you, whether it's online or in here. And just pray, Father, going forward that you give us great wisdom, that you give us discernment, that we beat the days that we leave. We thank you.